Welcome to the teachings of Pastor Mike Yost of the Springs Calvary Chapel in Habern, Idaho. Please join us as we study the Word of God. This morning, we're in Genesis 37 in our journey through the book of Genesis, and we've come to a, a really exciting place for me in the scriptures as we get into studying the life of Joseph. Uh, let me just go ahead and jump in at verse 1 of chapter 37, and we'll kind of start putting things together a little bit. Genesis chapter 37, verse 1, now Jacob dwelt in the land where his father was a stranger in the land of Canaan, the end. Did you see that in your Bible? You might not have seen it in your Bible. It's actually not in mine either. But that is actually the end of the last story that we were reading that began in chapter 36. Genesis is comprised of 10 or maybe how you divide it, 11 different stories. We're often called histories or genealogies. What followed after certain events. The Hebrew word for that is toledot. I've been sharing that with you since we began the book of Genesis. It really helps you to see the structure and organization and the focus of what God is trying to show us in the book of Genesis. We began multiple months ago in Genesis chapter 1, verse 1. That is what we would call the prologue, the beginning of the whole origin of the world. It begins with God. God's already there. In the beginning was God. And in chapter 1, verse 1 through chapter 2, verse 3, we see creation. As God said, let there be light. And as God created the heavens and the earth and the animals and Adam and Eve, this is the prologue. It's the setup to what will follow. Then at chapter 2, verse 4, we begin with the Toledots, the histories, the genealogies, and as I'm going to demonstrate in a minute, it really can help you understand what follows after. So what followed after the prologue, Genesis 1-1 through 2-3, creation. What follows after in Genesis 2-4 was the genealogy of heaven and earth. What followed after he created heaven and earth? And he backs up a little bit, and we see Adam created Eve. We see the Garden of Eden, and we see the fall of man. That runs through chapter 4, 26. And then we get our second Toledoth, uh, the history or the genealogy of Adam from chapter 5, 1 through 6, 8. And it just starts going down. What followed after? The genealogy of Adam all the way through Noah. We get a list of names. And then in chapter 6 at verse 9, we begin the history, the, the story of what followed after Adam. And in chapter 6, 9, it's the total oath of Noah and the ark, the flood, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Then in chapter 10, we get the 
Toledoth, the history, the genealogy of the sons of Noah, okay? And the table of nations, 70 different nations, as got, people came off the ark. We get the story of Nimrod and the Tower of Babel. And then at chapter 11, beginning at verse 10, we get a genealogy of Shem. It's very short because that line doesn't really... Um, pan out too much at that moment. And then in 1127, we get the history of Terah, which is confusing because it's all about Abram, who will be renamed Abraham. And it's actually chapter 1127 through 2511. It's 25% of the whole book of Genesis is the story of what followed after Terah. It's the story of Abraham, right? And in that story of Abraham, we see Sarah we see Hagar, we see Ishmael born, we see Isaac born, we see Abraham's wife after Sarah died, Keturah, and we see Midian. And, and that's that whole story of what followed after. In chapter 25, we get this story of Ishmael. What followed after Ishmael? He was a wild man. He lived in the deserts, we read. And then in chapter 25, 19 through 35, 29, so a full 10 chapters, we get the, the history of Isaac. But as we notice, it begins with uh, Isaac's wife, uh, um, Rebecca, is in travail. She's having a baby, and two babies are born, Esau and Jacob. And the whole 10 chapters are really about Esau and Jacob, uh, and mostly Jacob, and going to Laban to get a bride. Leah, he ends up with, he ends up with Rachel, he ends up with two more on top of that. And his name is changed to Israel, and we see the 12 sons or the 12 tribes of Israel introduced. And then just last week, we were in chapter 36, and this is where you could break it into two pieces if you want, 36, 1 through 8, and 36, 9 through 37. It is the story of Esau, and basically what happened to all these who followed after the genealogy, the descendants of Esau, and it ends in chapter 37, verse 1, where I just read. The end of those stories of Esau ends with, now Jacob dwelt in the land where his father was a stranger in the land of Canaan. The end. And now we pick up the last of the ten stories or histories or genealogies, what followed after, and it begins, this is the history, that word history is the Hebrew word I've been using, Toledot. This is the Toledot of Jacob. Okay, now we know, we've already heard the story of Jacob, but this is what follows after Jacob, so it's really not going to be about Jacob. In fact, right there at the end of 37, verse 2a, we're not going to hear about Jacob again until chapter 42, okay? And in chapter 42, Jacob will be back in the story. But the next handful of chapters are going to be all about Joseph. So it says in verse 2, this is the history of Jacob. Joseph, being 17 years old, was feeding the flock with his brothers. And the lad was with the sons of Bilhah and the sons of Zilpah, his father's wives. And Joseph brought a bad report of them to his father. So this is kind of how we get started into this new and this last, this final package, this story of the history of what follows after Joseph, and a full 25%, 14 verses, or 14 chapters now of the book of Genesis, a quarter of the book of Genesis is going to be dedicated to fundamentally Joseph. That's who we're going to be studying until we finish the book of Genesis now. And it's, it's nice. I like it. It's really um, 
really wonderful. You know, as we read about Joseph, we, we've seen a lot of dysfunction, family, uh, I don't know, factions and fights and fallouts and failures, and it's been just a mess. In fact, it's interesting, the whole book of Genesis from chapter 1, uh, it said, as God created on day one and day two and day three, it is good, it is good, it is good in the prologue. We get up to day uh, six and God creates Adam and Eve. He says, it's very good. And the prologue is great. And then we get to the first Toledot, the history of the heavens and earth. And what do we see? The Garden of Eden and the fall of man. And from then on in the book of Genesis, we've just been seeing a lot of sinners and a lot of their sins on display. But what shines through, and we've been following this, Jesus in Genesis, we see God on every page. Even though man, <laughs> created in the image of God, giving blessings and, and just a wonderful intimate fellowship with God, chooses to go his own way, chooses to sin, and chooses to reject God's will for his life, and the net result, the consequences is this, this book that we've been reading where God is constantly just coming in and mopping up after, picking up the pieces after, trying to fix all these things that mankind has failed in. We get to chapter 37, we get to the book of Joseph, and I want to encourage you the story of Joseph, the life of Joseph, is unique in all the Bible. He's one of the very few people that the Bible doesn't have anything bad to say about him. There's no record of Joseph ever doing anything bad, and the Bible has no negative commentary on anything he thought, said, did, or whatever. Joseph is a, is a picture of a person who knows God and knows God is good. You are good. Good. Oh. We're going to see in the story of Joseph that Joseph goes through a lot of bad, but Joseph remains good. We just sang, when the night is holding on to me, God is holding on. On. And Joseph knows, you never let go. You never let go. You'll never let me down. You are good. And this is the story of Joseph. It's kind of interesting as we go through this and we see Joseph, and we've been talking about finding Jesus in Genesis. A lot of people who study the Bible, um, who, who look at the Bible and, and kind of try to help us understand and riddle it out, You'll look at the Bible and you'll see things that are kind of like pictures or word pictures. We call it typology, that something is a type of some kind of a thought or an idea in the Bible. For example, Joseph is a type, a picture of, in some ways, Jesus, okay? And I mentioned there's nothing mentioned negative about Joseph. He's basically sinless. We know he's human. He was born in sin. He needs a Savior. But we see nothing negative recorded about Joseph, and we see him as a, a type of Christ, a picture of what Christ would be like in the midst of all this mess. 
okay? It's interesting. You can compare Joseph and Jesus and find a lot of similarities. For example, both were descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. That one's an easy one. Both were beloved of their father. We know this of Jesus and Joseph. Both shepherded their father's flocks. Both were sent by their father to their brothers. Both were hated by their brothers. Both had plots made to kill them. Both of them had their robes taken from them and they were bound. Both were sold for the price of a slave. Jesus and Joseph were taken to Egypt. They were both tempted. We'll see those in this story. And yet with both, there's no record of sin. Both were falsely accused. Both were arrested and bound. Both were falsely imprisoned. Both were placed with two prisoners, one who was saved and one who wasn't. Both forgave those who wronged them. Both were saviors of their nation, Israel, and both provided the bread of life to be a blessing to all nations. And so we see a type of Jesus Christ in Joseph. So as people have been opening up their Bibles thousands of years, even before Jesus was born in Bethlehem, they had a picture of what a good life would be like, a life of faith, a life of hope, a life of triumph in the midst of adversity. Uh, it's interesting here. Uh, the story of Joseph could be distilled down to three words. The hostage becomes the deliverer. As he was taken captive, and yet he set his brothers and the nation free. There are also typologies of faith in the book of Genesis. Adam shows the truth of faith. Enoch shows the walk of faith. He walked with God, and he was not, for God took him. Noah shows the perseverance of faith. Over a hundred years working on that ark, and had never seen a raindrop. Abraham shows the righteousness of faith. He believed, and God counted it to him for righteousness. Sarah shows the hope of faith, that in her old age in barren, she had hope and she conceived. Isaac shows the evidence of faith. Even though he was sometimes walking on the wrong side of God, there was evidence in his life as we see the sons born to him. Jacob shows the discipline of faith. And it took a long lifetime running from God, fighting with God, but eventually he got on board with God. He shows the discipline of faith. And Joseph, this story that we're getting ready to study, shows the triumph of faith. The God I serve only knows how to triumph. I'm going to see a victory because the battle belongs to the Lord. And this is the story of Joseph. So here we are, verse 2, this is the history of Jacob. Joseph, being 17 years old, was feeding the flock with his brothers. Just a side note, if you're uh, taking you know, one of those Bible scholar people likes to write things down. Based on 
the chronology of kings and the length of their kingdom or lifespans of people and these things, you can count backwards from the time that Solomon began his reign in Israel in 971 B.C. This is a date we can corroborate with sources outside of the Bible and line it up to the current calendars that we use nowadays, counting backwards from 971 B.C. and taking all these bits and pieces into account. With Joseph being 17 years old, it's now 1898 B.C., if you want to throw that into your Bible, okay? It is interesting. I would round it off to about 2000 B.C., I usually say Abraham lived around 2000 B.C., and it kind of helps me just get a handle on how long ago did all this happen. So, we're talking about almost 4,000 years ago, maybe a little more than 4,000 years ago. Jacob was 17 years old, and he was feeding the flock with his brothers, and the lad was with the sons of Bilhah and the sons of Zilpah. These are the handmaidens to Leah and Rachel. Uh, they're uh, Isaac's concubines. And these, these brothers, that would have been Dan, Naphtali, Gad, and Asher, are out feeding flocks. And Joseph is out there with them. And the lad was with the sons of Bilhah and the sons of Zilpah, his father's wife. And Joseph brought a bad report of them to his father. Okay, that's not a negative thing. Just, oh, look, he's a tattletale. There we go. You, I thought you said he's perfect. And neener, 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 he tattled on his brothers. It doesn't say neener, neener, neener there. So it's not wrong if he's out and he's saying, you know, brothers just aren't taking care of the flocks the way they should. They're, I don't know. They're slacking. They're doing things they should not to be doing. We could do better. At any rate, he brought a bad report. He, he ratted them out, so to speak. He, he, he showed them who they were. Now, in order to make sense of what's about to happen, what we're going to read, verses 3 through 11 can be understood to be a digression or background on Joseph. We meet Joseph, he's with his, the brothers of, uh, of his uh, dad's concubines, they're out watching sheep, he brings a bad report. Now let's get some of the backstory. Who is this Joseph, this 17-year-old boy, and what is his business in doing all of this? Verse 3, now Israel loved Joseph more than all his children, because he was the son of his old age, also he made him a tunic of many colors. So, we saw this previously, right? He is the firstborn of Rachel in the chapter where we were studying the baby wars back in Genesis 35. Finally, after all these other brothers are born, number 11 is finally born to Isaac's favorite wife, Rachel. She finally conceives and has a boy. She names his, jo his name Joseph, which means he will add in anticipation that there's going to be more to come. Finally, I'm having babies. They named his name Joseph. And because he was the son of his beloved wife, his favorite wife, again, not good to have more than one wife. You should have one favorite wife, and that's the only wife you should have, okay? But when you start having more, you're going to have problems. And 
and, and the problems are coming into this chapter. It was not Joseph's fault that he was born to Rachel. That was a blessing that he was born, okay? But now he has to pick up the weight of what it meant amongst all the other brothers. And there was animosity there. The lad was the sons of Bilhah, the sons of Zilpah, his father's wives, and jo Israel loved Joseph more than all his children. Small note, here in verse 3, we see Jacob called Israel. You always want to watch for this as you read through the Bible. Israel is the name God gave to Jacob after he changed Jacob's heart and gave him this new name. He was Jacob, the heel catcher, the deceiver, the cheat. But then in wrestling with God, finally God put an end to all that struggle. He touched his hip. He crippled him, so he had to limp the rest of his life. But now that he lives his life leaning on God and needing God to get through life, he has a new name, Israel. So when we see Jacob, Israel, one person, two names, called Israel, more often than not, this is going to be a reference to he's doing something in the spirit, not according to the flesh. And yet, look what it says, Israel loved Joseph more than all his children. Is that wrong or is that right? I don't know. I, I wouldn't put too much into it, but we know that God says, Esau, or Jacob, I have loved, Esau I have hated, and in some cases you can make a distinction with different people. Not every, every person doesn't have the same relationship with you, even in a situation with your children. Now, we've watched this situation have all kinds of negative impacts, and I would from the pulpit encourage you, you need to love each of your children with an equal amount of love, but not necessarily an equal kind of love. Because people are different. People receive love. People give love in a different way. Cheryl and I, when we were first married, uh, we were having a hard time figuring out why we weren't always so loving to one another. And we came across a book where they talked about love languages and how different people express their love in different ways. And my way of uh, expressing love was words of affirmation and gifts. I, you know, I, I would give Cheryl things. I would tell her all kinds of words of affirmation. And often it felt like it just went clink. I'm like, what's going on here? And then there were other times it's like, gosh, I don't feel. I, she doesn't really give me a lot of words of affirmation. And I wouldn't mind a couple extra gifts from time to time. But her love language was acts of service and quality time. And so we were not speaking to each other in our love languages. And it was when somebody expressed that, I'm like, man, she serves me like nobody I've ever known in my life. She serves not just me, she serves everybody. She's got the most amazing servant's heart, and whenever she's cooking a meal or cleaning the house or all these things, washing my clothes, doing my laundry, all these kinds of things, that's her way of saying, I love you. And she loved me a lot, and I wasn't even getting it. Right? And maybe you have those kind of relationships in your, you know, your world, right? Even with your children. Different children don't receive 
or express themselves in the same way. There's some children, you just say, you let me down. And they're crushed. And they never do it again because they won't want to let you down. There's other kids that got to go to the woodshed every week because that's their language. That's how they communicate. And you need to be appropriate with everybody. Well, in this case, hard to say, but he is referred to as Isaac, so we have to put a positive spin on it. But Isaac loved Joseph more than all his children. Keep in mind, you remember the other children, right? Simeon and Levi. Oh, let's um, circumcise them, and then when they're weak, we'll kill them and take all their stuff. Hard to love a kid like that. Reuben goes up to the wife, or goes up to the bed of his father's wife. Or you go down through the list of all of these brothers, these siblings of Joseph, and you're like, they all got issues, right? Yeah, you might not, you might not have the same loving relationship. Nevertheless, from the pulpit, I would say it's important that we find a way to express love to everybody that's appropriate for each person that we're discussing. But in this, we do see Israel loved Joseph more than all his children because he was the son of his old age. So that's, that, that's the, the boy that he had when he was a really old man. And I would, I would almost give him credit on this grounds. If you've had kids, right, the first kid is like an experiment. You, you just don't know what to do. You've never raised kids before. You try all these things out on them. But you have more than one child, three, four, five down the road. You start getting good at this thing. And you, can, you know how to you raise them. And, and by, you used to have a kid of your old age. And, man, now we're, we've got this dialed in. All the mistakes I made with the other kids, I don't make with this one. We get it right from the get-go. I'm speaking love language to them from the get-go. And, you know, it's all going good. Well, that could be what's happening. We see he loved Joseph more than all his children because he was the son of his old age. Also, he made him a tunic of many colors, okay? Now, just so that you know, this is a very, very difficult to translate out of the original language, out of the Hebrew. The word here for colors is not the word that is normally used in Hebrew to describe red, blue, green, yellow you know, orange. It's not that kind of colors. In fact, the word really has more to do with the palm of the hand or the sole of the foot, maybe something flat, maybe something like a panel, or maybe, and in this case, he made him a coat, maybe a coat that reached to his sleeves and reached to the soles of his feet. Maybe it was made of panels, so there's multiple panels in it. And maybe those panels were various colors, we don't know, but you don't want to get too misled by the fact that it was super colorful, right? And there's even this one play out. I don't even know what the, the, gen, the, the whole idea of it, but it's Joseph's many-colored dream coat. Have you heard of that? There's a play out there, and it, it takes off on the idea of this coat of many colors, and yet the reality is we really don't know what the coat looked like, other than we can say this for sure, it was unique. It wasn't like any other coat. When you saw that coat, you knew it was Joseph's coat, okay, because nobody else had a coat like that. 
Dad made Joseph a special coat. None of the other brothers got that kind of a coat, okay? It's, it's speculated that in the days of uh, Joseph and even you go into the Egyptian cultures and some of the things that we can look at in archaeology, often the slaves or the people who were the worker class would wear garments that were hemmed up high. It would enable them to work better. But those of the aristocracy, those in positions of authority and leadership, they could afford to have long sleeves and a long gown because they really didn't have to do the heavy lifting. They were more the overseers. And so people have said, maybe this code is a representation of Joseph's role amongst the brothers as kind of watching them. Therefore, he brought back a bad report. He was sent to tell dad how things are going. But you can imagine how awkward that would be because he's the little brother. And who wants to listen to the little brother tell him how to herd the sheep or whatever it is? You're just a kid. I've been doing this for years. You're not the boss of me, right? And, and you, there's some tension that develops. And we see this as we go on through the story. It says, but when the brothers saw that their father loved him more than all his brothers, they hated him and could not speak peaceably to him. So, in this regard, we can see that the brothers are now showing their true colors. They're envious, right? That green-eyed monster, they're jealous, and they are hateful towards their little brother, and they can't say a nice thing to him. Poor Joseph, if his love language is words of affirmation, because he doesn't get a lot of that in this house. They hate him and cannot speak peaceably to him. Now, Joseph had a dream. This is one of six dreams that we're going to see from Joseph as we go through the Scriptures here. And uh, I'll develop it a little bit more as we get further in. But Joseph is known as a dreamer, okay? And, and, and for good reason. So he has this dream, and he told it to his brothers, and they hated him even more. Okay, let's look at the content and see if it, what that has to do with anything. So he said to them, please hear this dream which I have dreamed. There we were, binding sheaves in the field. Now, this is when you gather the grain, right? You would take a sickle, you would cut it, you would grab an armload, you would wrap it up, and you would set it in the field, and you'd get another sickle full or two or three, wrap it and bundle. Those are called sheaves, and they would stand them up, and later on they'd go through the field and pick up the sheaves after they've fully dried out. And so, this is what he's saying. We were binding sheaves in the field. Then behold, my sheaf arose and stood upright. And indeed, your sheaves stood all around and bowed down to my sheaf. Let's presume that this coat is a coat of authority, this coat of colors, and that he has been given a position of supervision over his brothers, and now he gets this dream. Now remember... Probably the easiest way to understand verses 3 through 11 is a digression. He was out. He brought back a report of his brothers. Now let's see what the story is. Why is there this animosity? So back in the history of Joseph, before this moment that we read here when he's 17 years old, somewhere younger possibly, he could have had this dream. And in this dream, he's out 
binding sheaves, and they have to bow down to him. That would make them bitter, okay? It's just uh, uh, another uh, uh, whatever straw on the, is it the camel's back, right? Just, just one of those things that just bothered them ter terribly. And his brothers said to him, verse 8, shall you indeed reign over us, or shall you indeed have dominion over us? So they hated him even more for his dreams and for his words. Now, just to give you a, a, a note, if, you're, if you write in your Bible notes, this dream will come true. It's a dream come true. In chapter 42, verse 6, the brothers indeed do gather around Joseph, and they bow down. Shaka, they pay homage, they hit the deck, and they bow down before Joseph in chapter 42. So, in fact, this is a word from the Lord. God has spoken. He's given him a dream. This is prophetic, what's going to happen in the future. He tells it to his brothers. They receive it negatively. Now, if you've read the story of Genesis, you probably know where this is going, but maybe this is your first time through the book of Genesis. And in it, you're going to notice um, that God really means this for good. He gives Joseph a dream, and in this dream, it's God's plan to save the nation of Israel. This is going to be good for Israel, but Israel or the tribes the, set, the, the, the brothers, they take this good news from the Lord, and they hear a curse. They hear it as though they are somehow inferior or second class or subordinate to their brother. Now, if you've been following in the book of Genesis, we see story after story after story of brothers that are subordinate to their elder brothers, okay? And so that wouldn't surprise us as we've read through the book of Genesis, and it shouldn't really even surprise the brothers because they know what happened with Jacob and Esau. They know what happened with Isaac and Ishmael. <laughs> Thank you. They know that it's not always the first one that is the bless, gets the blessing or is the blessor. But nevertheless, the brothers receive it one way, and it's truly not the way as we see that God meant it to be. Verse 9, we get the second dream. Then he dreamed still another dream and told it to the brothers and said, Look, I have dreamed another dream, and this time the sun, the moon, and the eleven stars bowed down to me. So he told it to his father and his brothers, and his father rebuked him and said to him, what is this dream you have dreamed? Shall your mother and I and your brothers indeed come to bow down to the earth before you? And his brothers envied him, but his father kept the matter in mind. Now, a couple interesting things here to kind of pull out of this, and just some things for you to chew on. I'm not saying I am the end-all, be-all, expositor, interpreter of the Bible for you. You got to do your own homework. But in my digging, there's a couple things that I thought, hmm, this is worth note. I should probably point these things out. He sees a, another dream. Now, he says he tells it to his mother, his father, and his brothers. We just read in chapter 35 that his mother, Rachel, died in childbirth, giving birth to his little brother, Benjamin, when they were in Bethlehem. You remember that story? So, how is it that he's telling this story to his mother Rachel now when she died in chapter 25? Ergo, if we look at this as a digression, 
backfilling the story so you get a little bit more of where this animosity with the brothers comes from. It could be at a time earlier when Rachel was still alive that he had these dreams and he shared them with his brothers and his brothers got a chip on their shoulder. That's a possible interpretation of it. Another interpretation could be, and as we look and we see as Joseph as a picture, as a type of Christ, that there will come a day when every knee shall bow and will declare Jesus is Lord to the glory of the Father of those under the earth, those who have passed away already, those on the earth, and those in heaven. So maybe it's speaking of a, a, a situation more in a spiritual type realm. I kind of like the digression version of it. I just like to think this is just backfill. And there was a time when mom and dad and bros heard the story and they were offended. Even the father was like, really? You think we should bow down to you? There's a very interesting passage in the book of Revelation. In Revelation chapter 12, verses 1 through 5, speaking of the nation of Israel and the birth of Jesus Christ through the nation of Israel, and the animosity, the enmity, the hatred, the warfare of the devil, Satan, the serpent, against Israel as she brings forth Christ Messiah into the world. This is Revelation. It's kind of commentary on the birth of Christ, but it says in Revelation 12, verse 1, Now a great sign appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and on her head a garland of twelve stars. Then being with child, she cried out in labor, pain to give birth. And another side appeared in heaven. Behold, a great fiery red dragon, having seven heads and ten horns, and seven diadems on his head. His tail drew a third of the stars of heaven, and they threw them to the earth. And the dragon stood before the woman, who was ready to give birth, to devour the child as soon as it was born. And she bore a male child. Now this woman is speaking of the nation Israel, not Mother Mary, as some people would, but just Jesus Christ comes from the Jews, from the line of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He's a descendant. And this male child who was to rule all nations with a rod of iron, and her child was caught up to God and to his throne. And so we see this battle, this epic cosmic battle, and Revelation pulls back the curtain, and we see what's been going on in history. And it very well may be that this dream is speaking prophetically yet future of the nation of Israel being the one that is described as having the moon as a halo and she's standing, or the sun as a halo, standing over the moon and the seven and the 12 stars. So that might be a possible interpretation of it. Or as most people, and frankly as I, for most of my life interpreted it, it's just mom and dad and the brothers and they're all having to bow down to him because he's all that. Okay? Not, and again, I'm not trying to say that what I've just shared with you is, is special insight, illumination that only I have, okay? I get these things from other commentators, many of them going back hundreds and hundreds of years, okay? It's not just a random thought, but it's in the church and it's something to look at that's been brought out. So possibly there's two dreams, right? The one really has to do, and it will be fulfilled in chapter 42 when the brothers do come and bow down, and this one could be yet future, but it would explain a little bit why even mom is included in this group. 
um, as that reputation. So the brothers envied him, but his father kept the matter in his mind. And so here is Isaac and his son he loves, uh, Joseph, and he's thinking, wow, these are some interesting dreams my boy has. I wonder what that means. Now, what experience would Isaac have with dreams? Lots of them, right? We've just, we've, how many times God met him and, uh, wow, I didn't even know God was in this place. I woke up, you know, there was a ladder and there's angels going up and down and he's there and I'm wrestling with the guy and he touches my hip and how many different times he has encounters and experiences and dreams with God and now he has a boy who's a dreamer. Hmm, keep that one in my mind. A little bit of the backstory as to why there's this tension in the family. But that boy... He's a good boy, and he, he, he does things well, and, and he gives them this position, this situation amongst the brothers, and it does cause friction with the brothers. But again, in all of this, as we read in Genesis 50 at verse 20, you don't have to go there, but I'm going to reference it as we go through the life of Joseph many times, it kind of sums up not just the book of Genesis or not just the life of Joseph, it sums up the whole Bible. <laughs> it sums up the whole experience that you and I have as we walk the face of the earth. But this is Joseph looking at everything that's going on in his life through the lens of faith, through the lens of trust and belief in God. Seeing things the way God sees it in Genesis 50, 20, Joseph will say, about this whole experience that he's about to go through. But as for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good in order to bring it about as it is this day to save many people alive. Joseph knew and he always held on to that hope. Whatever is going on in my life, the world might mean it for evil. The enemy is out to get you. It's always trying to trip you up. But just know that if it's allowed into your life, God means it for good, okay? we got a book in the Bible. Actually, many people think it's the oldest book predating the book of Genesis, the book of Job. And, and, the, and the, 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 the enemy, Satan, appearing before God, you know, God says, have you considered my servant... Job, he's just and upright in all his ways, and, and Satan says, oh, he only likes you because you do nice stuff for him. If you take away all his nice stuff, he'll curse you. And he says, you're on. Just don't kill him. You can do anything you want. And so the curtain pulls back. We see the book of Job and what's going on in the cosmos and this warfare of Satan against uh, God and his son and, and followers of God, this righteous man Job. And we realize that the enemy is trying to do all kinds of wicked things. Job could never see that. He didn't see that. He just had to live his life like you and I live our life. Joseph never saw that. He just believed. He just said, God is good. What you meant for evil, God means for good. And he never let go of that. And because he never let go of that, he had faith. He had trust. He believed that God was good and that God had a plan for his life. We see in Joseph's life, he never missed steps. He always walks by faith. It's a wonderful story, but has to holding on in these dark nights that he's going through. His brother keep, or his father keeps this in his mind. Hmm, I got a special boy. 
That's my introduction to the life of Joseph. Fun stuff that we see in here, pictures of Jesus in Genesis. Worship team, you can come on up. If you haven't read to the rest of the book of Genesis, when you get home, just take and read it. It's a really good story, right? And, and you'll be really familiar because we're going to talk about all these things that are coming up in Joseph's life. Um, if I wait till I get to the end and I summarize, it'll seem, it'll seem like just one more dark negative story out of the book of Genesis. But I want us to go through Genesis, and I, we were talking about this at the children's curriculum meeting. Every month we sit down, and they're going through the book of Genesis just like we are, and we map out what the kids will be studying every Sunday morning, what crafts, what snacks, what activities go with it to support the message, and we try to ha have a clear message for the kids to, to glean out of each of these chapters. And one of the things we discussed you could look at these chapters and you can look at what the brothers do to him or what his father thinks of him or what Pharaoh thinks of him or what the prisoners he's imprisoned with think of him and, and all these things. Or, and this is what I pray we do, we could go through these last chapters of Genesis and see it through Joseph's eyes. Yeah, I know all kinds of things. You meant it for evil, but Joseph sees it for good. And let's see what Joseph sees as we go through the Scriptures, okay? Um, God is working not only for Joseph himself, but there's also a big picture of God's redemptive plan for all of mankind in the life of Joseph. If Joseph's brothers never sell him to the Midianites, spoiler warning, he's going to get sold, okay? There's a lot of spoilers in here, so just hold on. But if he never gets sold to the Midianites, then Joseph never goes to Egypt. And if Joseph never goes to Egypt, he's never sold to Potiphar. And if he's never sold to Potiphar, Potiphar's wife never falsely accuses him of rape. If Potiphar's wife never falsely accuses him of rape, then he is never put in prison. If he is never put in prison, he never meets the baker and the butler of Pharaoh. If he never meets the butler and baker of Pharaoh, he never interprets their dreams. If he never interprets their dream, he never gets to interpret Pharaoh's dreams. If he never gets to interpret Pharaoh's dreams, he never gets made prime minister. If he's never made prime minister, he never wisely administrates for the severe famine coming upon the region. If he never wisely administrates for the severe famine coming upon the region, then his family back in Canaan perishes in the famine. If his family back in Canaan perishes from the famine, then Messiah can't come forth from a dead family. If Messiah can't come forth, then Jesus never came. If Jesus never came, you are dead in your sins and trespasses and without hope in this world. If, if God wasn't in the picture, if Jesus wasn't in Genesis. If the Lord isn't in your life, you're never going to understand what's going on and how things are working. But if you know God, you believe in God, you trust God, you walk in faith with God, you will hold on and He will never, ever let 
you go. Never, never let you go. Romans 8.28 says, and we know. Do you know? Do you know God? Do you know Jesus Christ? Do you know that your sins are forgiven, that your debt is paid, that He has come to give you hope and life, eternal life? We know that all things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are the called according to His purpose. When we read that, I know people sometimes misread it. And they say, oh, if you love God, then everything's good. No, it's not. You can love God with your whole heart, mind, strength, and soul. Jesus did. And they hung Him on a cross. And what the enemy meant for evil, God meant it for good. And it was at that moment of greatest crushing and defeat that victory was won on the cross of Calvary, when Jesus came up out of that grave. Amen? Amen. This is the story of Joseph. I think you're going to enjoy it. Stay tuned. (laughs) Father God, I want to thank you for giving us hope in the truth of who we are and who you are and who your son Jesus Christ is and what he came to do for us. And it's on display, Lord, here As we've been reading in the book of Genesis, as we go throughout all of the scriptures, Lord, we see your plan to save and redeem us who have been lost, to give us a future, to give us a hope, to give us a purpose, to give us a reason to sing your praises. Help us, Lord, as we go through this life to be like Joseph walking by faith, trusting in you, knowing that you're not finished with us yet. That until the day we look into your eyes, you've got work for us to do. You've got many people to save alive. Help us to be about your business. By the power of your Holy Spirit, fill us and send us out in Jesus' name. Amen? Amen. Thanks for joining us today. To learn more about the Springs Calvary Chapel, please visit our website at www.thespringscalvarychapel.org. Join us in person at the Springs in Hebron, Idaho, or here on the podcast as we worship together in spirit and in truth.